is a uh, prayer card that you've completed. We can pick those up. And uh, if not, or if something comes to mind as we go along, we'll pick them up again later on. We had a uh, busy weekend. We had um, Friday night, the youth uh, game night. And uh, we had, I think, 17 kids here for that. And, uh, and then, of course, the wedding shower yesterday. So uh, that was... Um, uh, had a lot going on. Uh, we are continuing here. One of the challenges when we read the Bible is uh, particularly stories and passages that we, we know well, is that once we've read it and feel like we understand it, um, we tend to read it the same way every time. Right? We, we read the Bible as though it can only have one meaning or one application or one lesson for our lives. Now, obviously, if we look at every verse in the Bible and say, oh, this verse could be understood a hundred different ways, then we sort of end up with, with chaos, don't we? Um, but at the same time, if we read the Bible and we say, this particular verse or passage can only be understood one way, and my way is the right way, uh, then we're only ever going to read that, we've already sort of put blinkers on uh, to, to understanding what God is saying. And so the, the uh, more familiar a passage is, the more likely that is to happen. But also the more homogenous a church is, okay, the more uh, we all come from the same place, then the more we are likely just to say, amen, brother. Amen, sister. That's exactly right. You know, um, and, and we just, that's our experience. Okay? And so that's how we, we can develop sort of a, a group think that this is, and again, this is the only way perhaps to understand it. And so one of the strengths of a diverse church, if we can draw it out of ourselves, is that we bring diverse perspectives to the scriptures. I'm going to, uh, I want to share with you an example from a, a, a book that, that I have in my library. And I, I found it fascinating. I have shared it with you before, if it sounds familiar, but I want to, uh, it fits very well with us today. Uh, before we, we get into that, though, this is the story of uh, usually called the prodigal son. And uh, I'm just going to read through this and uh, then read from this other book. We're not reading the whole story. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. There he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. So, 
Again, probably a passage that most of us, a story most of us recognize. And so this uh, college professor read the, the story uh, to a class full of people and then had them retell the story to a partner. Okay? It sort of helps them see what they've understood, what they've been able to, to grasp. And so none of the uh, 12 students, small class, uh, mentioned, the, mentioned the famine that shows up in verse 14. Did you see the, the famine in there? It says that the famine is what actually prompts the sun to return. And so this professor finds the omission interesting. And so he, he organized a larger experiment in which he had 100 people read the story, retell it, with the Bibles closed, retell it as accurately as possible, again to a partner. Only six of the 100 participants mentioned the famine. The group was ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, religiously diverse. It built diversity into the story. He calls this, this group the famine forgetters. Um, they all had one thing in common. They were from the United States. So he has the occasion to uh, travel outside the country and uh, he's in St. Petersburg, Russia. He says to himself, I, I think I'll try this again. So he gathers 50 participants to read and retell this story of the prodigal son. This time, an overwhelming 42 of the 50 participants mentioned the famine. I wonder what the difference is. Okay, what's the difference? Well, from when he conducted this experiment just 70 years earlier, 670,000 people had died of starvation after a Nazi German siege of the capital city began a three-year famine. Famine was very much a part of the history and imagination of the Russian participants in that study. So based solely on cultural um, experience, cultural location, people from the United States and people from Russia disagreed about what the crucial um, details of the story were. Okay? So six out of 100 in the United States said, well, it's a story about a famine. And it was 80-something percent of people in Russia said it's a story about a famine. And so how do we, how do we describe this? The, uh, here in the United States, we tend to be a fairly individualistic country. Capitalism gets us focusing on capital. And so we look at the story through the lens of money. Right? It's a story about money. It's a story about someone who wasted their money on wild living. That's why we call it the story of the prodigal or wasteful son. Okay? And, and so that becomes the lens through which we see it. 
Somebody who wasted what was given to him. In, uh, in Russia, a great famine swept over the land. They, they, they seize on that information. They're less individualistic than the United States is. But the other thing is that they're also a little more fatalistic, right? If a, if a famine happens, it just happens. You know, what can you, what can you do? There's no blame to, to be apportioned here. The, the young man in the story fell on hard times because everyone fell on hard times. It was a time of hard times. And so that was just the way it was. Wasn't any judgment on him or anything going on. And so while the Chris uh, readers in the United States would just see the bit about the famine as just a little bit of fluff to fill out the story, for the Russians it explains why he starts looking around to come back home. Well, that wasn't the end of the story, though. Uh, he continues on and uh, take, went to Tanzania, which is in Africa. Not Tasmania, which is in Australia, but Tanzania. And when he told the, did the same experiment there, he received a different response. Okay? And you probably all recognize what the third reason for the young man's destitution is, because we've read it you know, so many times. He asked the people to say, why did, uh, to identify the cause of the son's depravity in the pigsty. Why did he end up in the pigsty? And the Tanzanians didn't blame his wastefulness. They didn't blame the famine. They focused on the statement that was right at the end of our text. No one gave him anything. Chances are you didn't notice that phrase. Chances are you didn't notice the famine. And you were just wondering as we read it through at the beginning, what's Peter going to talk about? Or I know what Peter's going to talk about because I know how this story goes. No one gave him anything. You see, their, their, their society is more communal. And so in their eyes, it wasn't, it wasn't the failing of the young man. It was the failing of the community to support him that he was left on his own. Okay. So our geography then um, determines, influences how we read the scripture and, and how we're going to go into bat and say for which one is, is right. Okay, uh, if that's even the, the right, the correct question. Um, and so this is one of Jesus' longest parables, but it's still fairly shallow. Okay, he doesn't give us a lot of information. Doesn't tell us what happened to the boy's mother. You know, doesn't tell us where the city is. Doesn't tell us, you know, a lot of their, their thoughts. You know, it's just pretty factual, pretty bare bones. In, in how the, the story is told. And despite this, we can still find three different reasons that the younger son ends up in a pigsty. I read a book this week that suggested that the parable isn't even about an individual. It's really telling the story about Israel and how Israel walked away from God, went into exile, and then came back 
to, to God. You know, woke up to their senses and some of them came back and how that, and how when they arrived back, the, the Jews or, or the people in the land mis, mistreated them. Uh, they weren't, weren't welcome. Um, and, and so it was aimed at the Pharisees saying, look, you're not welcome. You're like Samaritans. You're not welcoming these people that are coming back to God. So that would be a fourth. And today I actually want to approach this story as an example from yet another perspective. Seems to me this story illustrates well the three monsters that we've been talking about over the past few weeks. I am what other people say or think about me. I am what I have. And today I am what I do. Each of these statements describes ways that our identity or our value uh, can become warped. We define ourselves in comparison to others. I'm a success, I'm a failure, uh, I'm good at this, bad at that, based on how we rank ourselves in comparison to, to others. Um, we define ourselves by our possessions. Okay? The more I have, the better I am. The less I have, the less successful I am. And sometimes we define ourselves by what we do. How often when you're meeting someone new um, for the first, first time and you're having a, a conversation, within the first five minutes, do you exchange information about what you do for a job? Hi, my name's Peter. Oh, that's nice. What do you do? Are you married? How, how's you, do you have a family? You know, like, but what do you do is one of those fundamental, basic questions that we tend to ask each other when we meet. You know, what's, what grade are you in at school, you know, if it's a younger, younger person? What are you studying if they're in college? What do you do? Why is that so important? Why do we ask that to get to know someone? Does it tell us something about them? Somebody says, I'm a social worker, and someone says, I'm an engineer, or I'm a bookkeeper. You know, do we make some assumptions that, oh, that social worker must be a caring person, and the bookkeeper, they don't care about people, they just care about numbers. Right? The engineer just cares about details. Um, you know, the, an, a nurse, oh, you're a kind person, I know that. Right? Because every nurse is kind, right? It's a caring profession. And, and so we, if we can just ask someone, what's your job? It's as though we're now able to give them character attributes based on their answer. Okay. Um, if somebody says, I'm a manager, we make certain assumptions. If somebody says... I drive a garbage truck. We make other assumptions. And so we tend to not only define others, define ourselves by what we do. Another way that our <laughs> jobs define us, and this is not really one that we have control over, but it's in our names. Many of us have last names that relate to uh, an occupation that someone in our family tree uh, was connected to. So, for instance, uh, the name Cooper, uh, 
means somebody that made barrels. Okay. Um, Fletcher means somebody that makes arrows. And a smith is just someone that works with metal. There have been a lot of metal workers over, over time, right? There's another list of names you can look those over and see how many of those do you know people with those, with those names. And they all come from an occupation back in the past somewhere. Some, some we still recognize, some are a little obscure. But let me, let me ask, does reading adventure books make us an adventurer? Really doesn't, does it? It makes us a, a reader, you know? So what we, what we do does, you know, sort of make a, an influence. Does watching 20 years of law and order make us a detective? <coughs> okay. No, it just makes us a fan. Uh, and and so, so, you know, sometimes defining ourselves by what we do, you know, can be deceptive. Because we say, oh, yeah, I know oral. I, I practically got my law degree from watching all those shows on television. Right? But it doesn't, doesn't work like that. And so we, we can misinterpret how what we do <laughs> impacts us. Um, when we think about the, the way that we talk about ourselves, we, we might say, I'm a truck driver. But there, there's a, a subtle difference, I think, between saying I'm a truck driver and saying I drive a truck for a living. Because I'm not saying this is wrong, but I just think this highlights the difference. That saying I'm a truck driver sort of says something about me, my character, this is part of who I am. Right? Even if tomorrow I give up truck driving and I become a baker, then, then what do I say? Oh, well, I'm a baker. And there's a whole new set of assumptions about who I am. You see, it's really a very fickle definition. But, but yet we, we take some identity. I'm a truck driver. In fact, I might belong to the fraternity of truck drivers. Um, We've all got our secret code on the CB radios, you know, uh, as we go down the, the interstates. Um, and, and so we have our rituals at the truck stops and our favorite trucks. So, you know, like we belong to a group. We're, and so because I'm a truck driver. Whereas when we say, I drive a truck, it doesn't say anything about me as a person. Right? It doesn't say, you know, whether I'm caring whether I'm efficient, uh, whether I'm a loner, maybe, but maybe not. Um, it just says that I'm a person with all my characteristics and relationships and values and habits, and I drive a truck to make a living. My identity is not wrapped up in being a truck driver. My identity is in something else. And, and so... I. I think for, it shows just how easy it is for us to come to view ourselves by what we do. Okay? We're defined, we define ourselves and others by what we do. Some of you 
may know people or relate to the phenomena yourselves of struggling to find a purpose upon retirement. If a person had a job sharpening pencils for four, the past 40 years and then retires, do they have a life purpose if there suddenly aren't pencils to sharpen anymore? See? When, when we put our, our identity into that career and the career changes, then how do we view ourselves? It's not just a, an employment crisis often. It can be an identity crisis. I, I, I can't do that job because I'm too good for that. I do this job. Yeah? Um, and, and so we, we, what am I going to do? How am I going to fill in the days? How am I going to find meaning? How am I going to contribute? Some people might say, my job gives me a lot of meaning. I get that. It's a calling as well as a job, right? And you're pouring yourself into the lives of others. And, but then there's also other people around what you're doing, whether it be the custodians or the bookkeepers or the, you know, whatever, that make your job possible. And so it's a, a system. That, that works together. But when we change that, who are we? Who are we? And so where do we find our identity, our purpose, our meaning? I want to apply this sort of perspective of these three statements to the story of the lost son. We'll come back to number one, but Starting with number two, it, it kind of pops off the page, doesn't it? The, Dad, give me all my money. Give me all my money, my inheritance. I want it now. This is going to make me somebody. And it seems like it did make him somebody, right? He goes to a faraway city. He has lots of friends, has a good time. He was the, the man of the hour because his money made him somebody. And then when life goes badly, he works as a farm laborer, he's um, feeding the pigs, and as he travels home, he practices the speech that he's going to give to his dad. And he says, Father, I have sinned, and I am not worthy to be called your son. Because this is now how he sees himself. He, he still sees, he now sees himself not by what he has, right? He doesn't come home and say, Dad, I'm penniless. He comes home and says, I have sinned. Rather than defining himself by what he has, now he defines himself by what he's done. Okay? I have sinned. I am a sinner. And so the son makes this move in the way he views himself and his relationships. And then when he gets home, he encounters his brother. And, and it's the brother is totally hung up on number one. He sees himself in comparison. You see, the, the, the younger son comes home and the father throws a celebratory uh, you know, dinner, invites all the neighbors, and the older son is standing over in the corner and he says, well, hey, I've been here all these years. I've been 
good, I've been doing what I'm supposed to do, and you've never thrown me a party. What does that say about me as a person? Does that, that say I'm not valuable? Does that say I'm not appreciated? Does that say you don't care about me? He is comparing himself and saying, if you're doing that for him, why aren't you doing it for me? What's his value to you? What's my value to you? And he's trying to, trying to make sense of what's, what's going on. But also, he clearly already has, never mind the party, he already has a uh, definition of himself. I'm the good brother that stayed behind, right? Compared to that guy, you know, that scoundrel, that prodigal that went and wasted all that money, that bad steward, I'm responsible because I stayed home. This is who I am. I'm a hard worker. I'm responsible. I'm committed to my parents and to the, the business, to the property. Like, this is me in comparison to him. And it makes him feel pretty good about himself. And that's why when he sees his son, his brother being treated differently, he says, I, I don't understand what's, what's going on because the comparison isn't working at this moment. And so in this story, we see each of these as, as people at different points define themselves in these three ways. Now I want you to remember that these are the monsters, these three statements on the screen. They're the temptations. They're the, the wrong answers. But they're easy answers, aren't they? Do you notice how quickly the, the prodigal switches from defining himself from what he has to defining himself by what he's done, by his actions? And, and so we can do that. It's not like, oh, I see myself this way. That's my struggle. <laughs> we can switch really quickly from one to the other. Um, and so each of them are temptations that are going to come and, and latch onto us at various points in our lives. But the truth is, I'm not any of these. I'm not any of these. Because my identity, my value originate in my relationship with God. I'm a child of God. Not because of what I have. Not because of what I've done. Or because of my relationship with people around me. But only because God died for all of us. Corey read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 sort of makes this comparison with, with Israel and the temptations that Israel had and the way they gave in to their different temptations. And, and, and so he's sort of saying, look, look back at history and see all the things they did wrong. And, and then it, it comes to the church and he says to the church, okay, now you be careful, right? You, because it's easy to look at these other people who are doing things wrong, right? And we start that comparison thing and we go, oh, yeah, I would never do that. Or I used to do that. I don't do that. I'm not doing that. And so we, we come out better. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 12, it says this. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. <laughs> right? Because those monsters 
those thoughts, those temptations will come and latch on just when we think, oh, no, I'm good. I am secure in my relationship with God. And then we start finding ourselves saying, I'm secure in my relationship with God, much more so than that other person. Oh, oh, oh no. Um, I, I know I'm secure in my relationship with God because look how he's blessed me and how much I have. Oh, no, not, not that one. Um, yeah, I know I'm secure in my relationship with God because I go to church at... No, no not that one. Like, they, they come up and they hit us. And, and, and our struggle is just to say, I'm secure in my relationship with God because He's the originator of my relationship. He's the one that makes it possible. And so, when, when you're, you think you're standing firm, whether it be looking back at Israel or looking at people around us or looking at our own lives, he says, be careful then that you don't fall. And so we may wonder what the cause of the son's despair was. How was it? Why was it that he ended up in that pigsty? And, and we could you know, go through, is it about... Um, his rebellion is about his wastefulness. But the truth is, this story isn't so much about the son as it is about the father. And so whether it's about wastefulness, in the story the father waits, watches, and celebrates when he returns. Was he in the pigsty because of the famine? Doesn't matter. Because the father waits watches and celebrates for his return? Was it because his community let him down and deserted him? Doesn't matter. Because the father waits, watches, and celebrates when he returns. And in our lives, when we're going through turmoil, when we find ourselves at our dark points, when our monsters seem to be overwhelming us. There's light in our darkness. The Father waits, watches, and celebrates when we return. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Because you are His children, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, a Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. That's our identity. Children of God. God is our Father. Waiting, watching, and celebrating whenever we return.